Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. All my day. Many Americans are aware of the campaigns of voter suppression, the difficulties in registering to vote, how casting a ballot can often be cumbersome and time-consuming, as well as the flawed mechanisms used to count votes. Hundreds of laws have been passed by state legislatures to address these issues following the debacle that marked the 2000 presidential election. The absurdity of the Electoral College, a system that sees candidates such as George W. Bush and Donald Trump lose the popular vote and win the election, is periodically raised for discussion. The disenfranchisement of voters in Washington, D.C., Guam, in Puerto Rico, along with ex-felons, is also part of our public debate about elections. But what is rarely discussed or understood is how the electoral system has been rigged to prevent third parties and independent candidates from competing equally with Republicans and Democrats. A series of arcane laws and rules governing our elections make it exponentially harder for those outside the two ruling parties to get on the ballot, receive exposure, or participate in public debates. Commissions and boards set up to supposedly ensure fairness are composed almost exclusively of representatives from the two ruling parties. The Federal Election Commission, for example, is almost always composed of three Republicans and three Democrats. This discrimination, which is euphemistically labeled bipartisanship, is, as Teresa Motto writes, political apartheid. As the political scientist Theodore Lowy noted, one of the best-kept secrets in American politics is that the two-party system has long been brain-dead, kept alive by support systems like state electoral laws that protect the established parties from rivals, and by federal subsidies and so-called campaign reform. The two-party system would collapse, he writes, in an instant if the tubes were pulled and the IVs were cut. The attorney, Teresa Motto, was the national presidential campaign manager and in-house counsel for Ralph Nader in the 2000 and 2004 elections. Her book, Grand Illusion, the Myth of Voter Choice and a Two-Party Tyranny is a sobering and often chilling account, based on her experience in the Nader campaigns, of the nefarious mechanisms to prevent third parties and independents from competing in the election process. Joining me to discuss her book and how the two ruling parties have effectively closed elections to outsiders is Teresa Amato. Teresa, I want to begin, and it's a point you make in the book, about how we don't have uniform election laws, especially around ballot access. I mean, I was just stunned. You list many of them. Every state is different with a series of uh, rules. I mean, some require social security numbers, some don't. I mean, just lay out for us the labyrinth that independents and third parties face even to get on the ballot. Sure. And thank you, Chris, for having me on to discuss this topic, because it is uh, rarely discussed. And it's um, it's essential because if you're not on the ballot, you don't get votes. It's very hard to because of the write-in vote system. So 
the transparency around uh, and understanding around the topic of having 51 different sets of rules for a political candidate or party trying to put their candidates on the ballot is just an insanity uh, that few people want to ever undertake because it is so, so rigorous uh, and unfair and stacked against the third party or independent presidential candidate. So give us some examples. I mean, some of these examples are just uh, almost unbelievable. Many, many states require that you use their form or they don't even have a form and they have lots of laws about what should be on the form, but then nobody will tell you what they what should be on the form. And uh, you have to create the petition from scratch. Others say you have to use our pink paper and you have to have a notary sign here and you have to put the staple over here and uh, you can be rejected as a candidate, even if you've collected tens of thousands of signatures uh, and uh, and disappoint the people who have sought to have you on the ballot as a legitimate choice to expand the choice, you know, choices on the ballot, voices uh, in the discourse, every presidential campaign, it can be disqualified for the most minor uh, infractions, according to these uh, oftentimes partisan secretaries of state. So you have a non, you don't have a nonpartisan administration of elections. In many states, you know, this the uh, person who is in charge of the elections it also belongs to one of the two major parties. And as a result, uh, if they don't really want your candidacy, they can even make up new rules in the middle of being able to um, um, qualify for the ballot. And we saw that happen frequently in 2004. Let's talk about the legal mechanisms that the two parties use to, even after you get the signatures for ballot access, what then happens? Well, of course, they can sue you uh, immediately uh, to try to make sure that your candidacy never makes it to the ballot or ties it up and uh, drains all of your resources and forces you to go to several courtrooms simultaneously, depending on the state. For example, the state of Pennsylvania uh, had to have 10 courtrooms staffed with lawyers in order to have uh, uh, to in order to discuss the validity of these signatures. To back up a little bit, I don't think people really realize how many signatures have to be collected to run a presidential campaign. If you've ever tried to circulate a birthday card in your in your office or uh, even amongst your family, you know what it is to uh, get signatures. Standing on the corner in the middle of the summer with a clipboard, uh, trying to find out find people who a uh, know that they are registered to vote, b are correctly registered to vote, uh, c are willing to sign your petition is an incredibly difficult uh, procedure. Oftentimes, people don't want to admit they're not registered to vote, or they honestly don't know because they moved down the block, um, and they think that they're still registered to vote. And as a consequence, they sign your uh, petition, and it's not a valid signature. So that means for the candidate, they have to collect double or triple the amount of signatures in order to get the valid number of signatures that are required. This opens up a sport for people who want to remove you from the ballot as a candidate. And so teams of lawyers will scrub through the signatures, find, try to find ones that they can take off the ballot to make sure that you fall below the number that is required to qualify. This can be incredibly tedious, sitting in a 
state office or in a courtroom having to go line by line. And if your signature doesn't match uh, the one you used when you were 18 to register to vote and now you're 65, uh, it may get chucked. Or if it doesn't have the middle initial in some cases, or if you said your name is Tim and not Timothy. In other words, it's a game. It's a sport. It's a hazing system to keep legitimately qualified candidates who have a modicum of support or more uh, on the ballot as a choice for the American voter. I want to talk a little bit about the requirements. Um, you list several of them, um, and it's it's just bizarre, and it varies state by state. So you have to master the rules of each state, which, as you said, are completely protean and can change. Some states, New York, Michigan, and Missouri, don't allow a citizen to sign a petition for more than one candidate for the same office. Nebraska requires a signer's date of birth. Alaska, Virginia, and Hawaii ask for social security numbers, though all three states in fine print on the petitions say they are optional. Ohio petition signatures must be written in from only one county on each petition, requiring circulators to carry around multiple county petitions. Washington State requires advanced publication of a notice in the newspaper that you will be petitioning. West Virginia requires the circulators to go to a county clerk and get credentials, which must be displayed and not just carried in their pockets, uh, a curly cue over which the Nader campaign faced a lawsuit. Nevada requires that each petition be notarized. Pennsylvania still had mandatory candidate filing fees in 2000 with no waivers for indigents, even though the U.S. Supreme Court had held mandatory filing fees without indigent waivers illegal since the early 1970s. Nevada and Oregon require the candidates to submit the petition to the state for approval before petitioning begins. New Hampshire and Rhode Island require candidates to submit declarations of intent to file a petition in the states months before the actual deadline for the signature petitions. If the candidate misses the deadline for filing his or her statement of intent, the state can preclude the candidate from circulating petitions. Nevada and Michigan will disqualify signatures on petitions if the signer signed the petition before the signer's voter registration card was actually received and or processed by state officials. So you have all these rules state by state, and then you have the heavy hand of the Federal Elections Commission. You write about this because if you violate any of these rules, they will come down on you. And uh, of course, the Republicans and Democrats who have deep pockets can have staff that that's all they do. I mean, it's a full-time job, as you point out. So talk about that, but also talk about the intimidation, which you write about in the book, of volunteers who collect petitions. Sure. Um, to begin with, everything you said when I wrote the book back in 2007, it was published 2009, um, is was accurate then. Some of these may have cleaned up their, um, uh, their process or made it worse. Uh, and it's um, the state uh, that comes down on the candidate. The Federal Election Commission comes down on the money side, not the petitioning side. And the state will say, um, you didn't you didn't uh, do this correctly or one signature here is invalid the whole page is invalid etc so there's all kinds of curly cues uh, many that you read and far far more i just gave some of the examples right off the top of my head in addition to the shape of the petition which as you pointed out uh, in particular there were states that had um, 
had laws on the books that the courts had already struck down. The Supreme Court had struck down these laws, but it applied to one particular case, but they refused to recognize it or they said they would they would say there is this case out there, the Supreme Court case. Um, and but their Congress or their legislature in the state um, would not have fixed their law in time for the election or many years after the case. So you have a situation where the state legislatures may just ignore what the law of the land is until somebody then goes and points out, I'm sorry, this also applies to you and your state, and you shouldn't be uh, harassing signature collectors because of this. Now, to the other component of this is oftentimes the petitions require that you name all of your electors on the face of the petition. And that requires going and finding the electors who are qualified and uh, according to the laws of the state to serve as electors. Of course, people are voting for electors who will then go to the electoral college, a whole nother embarrassment uh, that we can get into. Uh, but Alexander Kesar has written a tremendous book about the electoral college, and I advise people to read it because it's amazing that we still have this uh, anachronistic Byzantine entity that is uh, how we elect uh, our presidents, oftentimes not in accordance with the popular vote count. But back to the um, back to the uh, enforcement uh, of the petition collection, and you asked specifically about the threats. You know, a lot of our a lot of our petitioners, unfortunately, faced all kinds of threats when they were um, standing on the corner in a park, even where it was perfectly legal to stand. Uh, from a in, in two thousand and four, especially people who did not want Ralph Nader on the ballot because they had this idea that Ralph was uh, had had spoiled the election for Al Gore, another term that we could talk about and a concept which is incredible given uh, what a third party and independent candidate has to do in order to get on the ballot. I think I say in the book, it's like blaming um, a startup in the garage, the equivalent of political startup of a garage or an economic one for the market share of two behemoths that, you know, like Microsoft and Apple and saying that uh, this this little candidacy that was an upstart candidacy that started with uh, $40,000 and, you know, a couple of people is is um, is what caused the difference in the in the vote count between the two or took an election away from one of the two major parties, which of course presumes that either one of those two major party candidates was quote unquote entitled to those votes as opposed to needing to earn them in a politically uh, competitive race, which we should have. And unfortunately in the United States, we often don't, especially at the congressional level too. You have foregone conclusions such that people from the other major party or even minor parties will not run because it's such a foregone conclusion. I recommend people to look at fairvote.org and their studies of how non-competitive uh, many of our elections are in the United States. I want to talk about the harassment because uh, the, the uh, major parties, it wasn't just verbal harassment, but you had attorneys uh, would investigate concerns about invalid signatures and threaten uh, people who are out there collecting, and you talked about how you write more than 30 of our petitioners quits, and this included home visits. Can you explain all this? 
Yes, in particular, I think you're referring to the description of what happened in Oregon, where uh, people visited signers of the petition and said, you know, you could you could um, you could go to jail if this is fraudulent or whatever. I'm paraphrasing here now because it was quite a while ago, but it was incredibly intimidating to get a home visit at night from somebody purporting to be, you know, semi-official, uh, explaining to you the consequences and wanting you to take your name off the petition. They were trying desperately to get people to take their names or say, I don't know what I signed. I have no idea, you know, and uh, as a consequence to try to make the signature requirement uh, levels uh, not met because people were removing their signatures out of in, out of intimidation. Same thing happened when, you know, some people showed up uh, with shotguns <laughs> and our petitioners were um, uh, harassed uh, and, you know, and verbally harassed too, just from people who had uh, strong political opinions and decided it would be easier to spit rather than to talk to the petition circulators. So they were chased out of places that they should have been chased out of. They were um, harangued, harassed, intimidated. I could go on. I want to read a paragraph from your book and have you comment. Some of these various Democratic groups apparently paid Clinton pollster Stanley Greenberg to do polling and apparently came up with the best smear tactics that would stick against us. And they settled on the line that we were bankrolled by the Republicans or were, quote, in bed with the Republicans. According to Catherine Seeley in the New York Times, on August 2nd, 2004, Greenberg's polling provided two early clues. When Nader supporters learned that Mr. Nader had accepted help and money from Republicans to get on the ballots in various states, they dropped away. And one of the few public figures who has credibility with Nader voters is former President Jimmy Carter, who is perceived as not compromised by or profiting from the political system. So some of the group's officials say they have discussed redeploying Mr. Carter, who they say has indicated a willingness to help. Talk about that smear campaign. Sure. It was even larger than what I wrote there because the Democratic Party deployed lots of high-profile people, uh, including, you know, Gloria Steinem and uh, Jesse Jackson uh, and others. Uh, and, of course, starting really with Howard Dean in 2004, who, uh, once he dropped out of the primaries, was apparently assigned a tack dog on the Nader campaign because uh, using someone who's politically close to the candidate like Ralph on some issues, and then having them go out and be the Democratic spokesperson uh, to taint Ralph, um, you know, was uh, an effective strategy, uh, even though I think many people saw through it. Then, you know, Ralph Nader had a reputation of for decades of being, uh, you know, squeaky clean and actually being the person who blowed the whistle on so many different federal agencies in terms of cleaning up their act and members of Congress by writing numerous profiles. I mean, he, Ralph Nader started as an American icon, right, who had been on the cover of Time magazine and named one of the most influential uh, people in the history of our country. And uh, to all of a sudden uh, try to turn this guy who had it was, you know, blowing the whistle on others and showing how unsafe some of our products are, how unclean our air was, uh, you know, how we needed to have more government transparency in all kinds of ways in federal agencies, et cetera, uh, that, you know, all of a sudden he becomes a scoff law uh, because some Democratic uh, 
publicity, you know, uh, uh, pub, you know, some Democratic spokespeople have decided that they uh, want to make sure that people don't vote for Nader, claiming that it was a vote taken away from uh, Al Gore in uh, 2000, using that scenario in 2000, but against and taken away from John Kerry in 2004. Well, we should also be clear that this smear about being a tool of Republicans was a lie. Oh, yeah. Let me get to that part. Um, of course it was. And uh, we weren't, uh, you know, being bankrolled by the Republicans. This is laughable. If the Republican Party really wanted to bankroll us, you, we wouldn't have had so few contributions, right? Um, you know, this, uh, and that's not, you know, that uh, that's not who Ralph is. That is not also... Um, who, you know, he's never been uh, for sale. And that includes uh, with our meeting with Terry McAuliffe. You might uh, recall that in the book where Terry McAuliffe, the DNC, had tried to call up and uh, promise unspecified resources if uh, Ralph didn't campaign in 19 particular states. Uh, neither Democrats nor Republicans are going to buy off Ralph Nader. I want to talk about... Uh fundraising and this gets to the FEC because it's uh, I didn't know this till I read it um, the 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 code is staggering and there are so many possible violations and they monitor you like a hawk and I think that's where you talk about how both in the Republican and Democratic Party you have people whose full-time job is essentially dealing with this but talk about this process because of course the the independents and third party, uh, third parties don't have the kinds of resources by which they can protect themselves. Right. Um, and independents and third parties also don't have a slew of vendors who are set up as um, nonstop entities to support one or two, one, one of the two major parties, right? So you're recruiting people, oftentimes novices, who are trying to apply a code that was not written for their candidate, that was written for the two major party candidates. And so it's often ambiguous or says nothing at all. And uh, I was repeatedly on the, uh, as well as others, on the federal election uh, commission's hotline. And uh, it, even in such major, uh, for such major things as when is a third party's uh, convention uh, and what, when is the tie, what, what is the, um, how is, why is it tied how much money a third party can raise in the primary election uh, tied to the date uh, of one of the two major party conventions. I and mean, it's all written around the two major parties. And so it has uh, nobody with an eye to what it takes to run an independent or third party campaign, I can believe has ever looked at those uh, at those provisions because they're oftentimes um, opaque. And so you have to spend an enormous amount of resources just dealing with understanding the federal regulatory process and or asking for them to understand their own process. And oftentimes they couldn't even provide an answer or you would get different answers and you'd have to call multiple times to double check or send a letter. And that takes all kinds of effort in order to get a straight answer from the Federal Election Commission. It's unfortunate, but somebody really needs to go through that um, chapter of the election, you know, the election code and rewrite it with another uh, less bipartisan mentality in mind. Well, you also write for people who get small contributions, say get $10, 
by the time you fulfill all of the requirements in terms of reporting contributions, you've evaporated that money. You've probably spent three to four times that just in the in the minimum, you know, the 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 wage to pay the person who had to go through the 16 different checkoffs you had to do in order to uh, even cash the check. And so it's incredibly um, onerous. We all like to say uh, that, you know, we'd like small donations uh, and uh, that our system would be more fair, perhaps, if we had lots of small donations. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the two parties, uh, you know, go to lunch on the the large donations uh, that oftentimes uh, independents and third parties don't have. You have exceptions, though, for example, when a billionaire like uh, Ross Perot runs or someone else that has the kind of extensive resources it takes, uh, then you can then it's easier to be able to process those donations. I am not advocating for not sending in small donations. I think they are, you know, they show uh, participation and every little bit helps for third parties and independent candidates. I am just saying that this is how the system is set up so that it takes proportionally much more of the resources of a small campaign uh, to be able to process those in accordance with the federal regulations. Didn't Ross Pro spend $18 million to get on the ballot? Is that right? Yes, and who knows how much in you know in housing volunteers and all kinds of you know right. So uh, it can be uh, it can be onerous uh, as he saw, and you can end up with as was the case with Mr. Pro, uh, not a single electoral vote. Uh, he was the last independent candidate to be allowed on the debate stage. Um, talk about the private corporation that runs the debates. Yes, it's a private corporation on New Hampshire Avenue, at least that's where it used to be, uh, that um, uh, was started by the chairs of the Democratic and the Republican Party, uh, the former heads of uh, Frank Farrenkopf. I, I just want to interrupt because it used to be the League of <laughs> Women's Voters. Correct. So a lot of people remain under the impression that the League of Women Voters still runs our presidential debates, but that changed Um decades ago now. And the Commission on Presidential Debates is a non-profit uh, organization, but it is not, and it was, and it says it's a non-partisan organization, but it was started by uh, the two major parties and initially considered itself very uh, bipartisan because as you mentioned, the word bipartisan to people sounds oh fair. We're just we're everybody's going to get along here, and we're going to make this fine. Now they mean they're going to make it fine for the two major parties. They don't mean they're going to make it fine for uh, third parties and independent candidates. Um, and though there has been. Uh, um, an independent or two on the Commission on Presidential Debates. It did start as, you know, basically and, and remains basically to serve the two major parties. And it puts up all kinds of uh, quote unquote objective tests, such as you have to have 15% of of the, the in, in an average of five polls in order to participate in a debate, or you have to have collected this many much money or be mathematically viable uh, to be a presidential candidate. And uh, it makes it very difficult. And I point out in the book that we don't 
we don't set up these kinds of hurdles in the economic arena that we have in the political arena because we would rarely get a startup uh, because who starts out with 15% of market share as a little company? You don't. You have to have time to grow into that role. They could do it much differently and they could say, well, if you're ballot qualified, we're going to have everybody ballot qualified. And then if they want to winnow it down to the two major parties um, at per, per, you know, or the two top uh, poll getters or whatever system they adopted that didn't start with the premise that it would only be the Republican candidate and the Democratic candidate for president of the United States. It's extremely important because in the fall, when those presidential debates are held, this is when Americans start to tend to you know pay attention to what's going on in the political world and who they're going to vote for in the upcoming presidential election. And having the Commission on Presidential Debates put its imprimatur on a particular two candidates um, is something that everybody can see. And there is no way for a campaign short of buying your own television ads, as Mr. Perot did, for example, his uh, infomercials, if you recall, um, to compete with uh, the kinds of exposure of reaching tens of millions of voters uh, in the United States through the through the presidential debates. I just want to close by talking about the press. You write about the press and its role in buttressing the power of the two parties and trivializing and even ridiculing independents and third parties. Yes. It's... Um, unconscionable to me uh, that you can have the major papers in the United States telling people, presidential candidates to drop out or to get out uh, because they're, quote, cluttering the field. Uh, where do we live and under what constitution uh, should we have the media telling political candidates that they should not be running because they're confusing or cluttering the field? Uh, that's not the role of journalists. And, you know, I, I've, I've been a newspaper junkie much of my life and would read the New York Times uh, as if it were, you know, uh, the record of the day, right? All the news that's fit to print or the Washington Post. Um, and then I started to be at the same events where reporters were writing up the events and the difference between how I saw the event and how the reporter reported the event uh, was stark. And uh, I, it shook my faith in the fourth estate uh, because um, it, there's often there's often political opinion attached to what is supposed to be uh, news reporting um, and or a, a, a prism or a bias that I didn't perhaps naively, of course, uh, did not really expect. Uh, what we see then is that not only is the are the are the institutional mechanisms, you know, the Federal Elections Commission, the state partisan administration of elections uh, stacked against third party and independent candidates. But we also have the press often ridiculing uh, the parties. They'll look for the one person dressed as a sunflower and take their picture. And as if that were representative of an entire convention of Green Party members who who's uh, who the sunflower is one of their uh, uh, one of their uh, identifiers. So, you know, it, it's uh, it's often um, rude, it's unfair, it's biased, and it comes out as this is uh, media reporting. 
Well, you're right. I think correctly. They focus on the trivial. You're talking about the press. They play gotcha politics with a vengeance. They actually look for ways not to cover what a candidate says, uh, but which guy staged the flashiest prop, who planted a question, who sounded idiotic, who got the $400 haircut. Um, in a well-documented example of how the Beltway Press Corps is increasingly uninterested in substance and more concerned with stagecraft and personality uh, than actually covering issues. Uh, this is from Media Matters. The mainstream media was, you know, they talk about a smear with Pelosi. But that is, that that's precisely right. It's the trivialization of the press away from issues. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and that, of course, is is particularly uh, directed at third-party candidates or independents who uh, are uh, turned by the press into kind of clowns. Yes, and it's uh, uh, it's it's not just unfortunate; it's uh, reprehensible. And journalism schools should actually hold a course in this kind of uh, reporting. And to see, I'd be happy to provide plenty of examples. Uh, the, uh, I even had to uh, write um, Donald Graham at the time, the publisher of the Washington Post, and say, you know, you cover Al Gore's vacation and you cover this and you cover that. And yet, uh, you know, Ralph Nader is holding rallies, um, uh, uh, well, uh, across the country uh, where you know, 20,000 people show up and they even pay to hear Ralph speak. And um, we really expected that kind of um that kind of political event and the subject matters raised and how many people were interested in talking about these uh, these subject matters that are often not part of the canned uh, two parties uh, discourse, right? And if especially where the two parties agree, for example, in 2004, you had John Kerry showing up uh, reporting for duty uh, in favor of the Iraq war. You didn't have an anti- war candidate is one of the two major party choices. And so a discussion of that, you would think, would be front and center in a presidential campaign. Of course, throughout history, it's always been the role of third parties to bring up issues that, uh, that one of the two parties needs to adopt or else the third party will continue to grow. For example, the abolitionists, the suffragists, you know, uh, many of the provisions that became part of the New Deal for workers uh, uh, came from third parties, right? And they wouldn't even make it into the national discussion if we didn't have third parties and independents who were willing to put forward those ideas uh, in in the in the uh, in an election and to stand for those ideas. Of course, it sometimes takes decades for the United States um, uh, politics um, of uh, or opinion on various political topics to recognize the importance of those people who have put forward often unpopular ideas. It was not popular uh, to give women the right to vote, and yet enfranchisement, economic advancement, uh, political advancement, our geopolitical uh, role is often brought up by third parties and independents. We could talk about NAFTA, for example, or GATT, or any of the other kinds of uh, trade agreements that uh, the two parties weren't talking about, uh, and the two major parties. I don't like to say the two parties because too often 
saying a two-party system implies the entire culture, right, of, of just being two parties. But the word party is not in the United States Constitution. And what it is really is a, a system set up for two parties to dominate uh, the field and to exclude independents and third-party candidates. Great. Thanks. That was Teresa Amato on her book, Grand Illusion. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.